And I think the first lesson has to be that, and I think people are finally coming onto this, like everything you buy, everything you do, knowing what we know about the impact that our behavior has on the world, the natural world and the planet we inhabit, everything you do and everything you buy is a political act. You, you can't get away from the fact that you're playing politics when you purchase something which is doing damage to a habitat or an ecosystem or a sea. So understanding that as a first point is like the main thing that I think we were trying to get across. It's like, we have to take some responsibility. So a consumer guide seems like a good place to start. There's nothing more social than sharing a spritz with friends. And Spritzing Hour shares the stories of those who bring us together over great food and drink. I'm Claire Warner, co-founder of Acorn, a range of non-alcoholic aperitifs. And I'm on a mission to prove just how important great food and drink are in connecting us to one another. I want to expose the bitter truth from the rule breakers and game changers who are turning the table on traditional food and drink culture and reshaping our social lives for the better. I'll be hearing from chefs, growers, bartenders, writers, and a whole host of people who, like me, are curious and passionate about how we can enhance that simple act of grabbing a seat at the table and eating and drinking together. There are very few whose work transcends the functionality of the objects we use day to day, but Seb Cox is definitely one of them. Seb is a furniture designer with a difference. He and his wife Brogan grew up in the English countryside on and around farms and today manage a coppice in Kent. They share a passion for understanding and caring for the natural world. The Sebastian Cox Studio and Workshop opened its doors in 2010 to find commercial use for coppiced hazel, therefore creating a financial incentive to better manage our woodlands. But their work goes deeper than that, as their manifesto for nature-first land and resource use shows. I sat down with Seb to learn more about the symbol of the table as a place for connection, eating, drinking and sharing, but also about how the table can take us back into the forest, back to the trees and land we share with other species to encourage us to give back what we've been increasingly consuming without any signs of slowing down. It's a brilliant chat. I hope you enjoy it. Hi friends, welcome to the Spritzing Hour, a brand sparkling new podcast where I'll be exploring the changing ways that food, drink and our connections to each other are evolving. I'm your host, Claire Warner, and today we're pulling out a chair and grabbing a seat at the table, discussing the role that furniture plays in our connection to each other and how by viewing it from a new perspective, we can better appreciate the land and resources that we draw from it. I am joined by the brilliant Sebastian Cox. Hello, Seb. Thanks for joining Hi. us today. Thank you for having me. It's to be here. So Seb, you I've described you um, as a bit of a furniture designer uh, with a difference because while you do produce incredibly beautiful work, your philosophy and your approach goes sort of deeper than just the production of furniture. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, I think um, I think we would be described as a values-driven business, which is not something I was really aware of when I started the business. I just started trying to kind of solve problems uh, through design. I mean, you know, design by its very nature uh, invites us to question the way that things are made and and designed, designated, and um, 
so yeah, by the very nature of my training, I guess it, it sets you up to ask questions. And I suppose in my early twenties, I was sort of audacious enough to ask really big questions before having any capability of answering them, <laughs> which is, I guess, like the fun part of studying. Um, and so, yeah, so we're, we're very much, uh, actually around how, how can we regeneratively interact with the earth? So how can we, how can we, um, leave not just a sustainable impact, but a positive impact, uh, as we produce things, because we, I accept that we will always want to produce things. We can't just keep endlessly using material culture from now. So if we're going to do that, how can we do that in a way that really, really limits the impact? And that sort of led me down the route of, I suppose, becoming like, you know, call myself a proper environmentalist. Like I believe in that cause and that's central to everything we do. And um, really the habitats that we source our resources from are kind of more important than the furniture. If that helps you kind of understand the kind of balance in how we think. It's sort of habitat first, nature first. And then what can we design and make with those things that the natural world wants to give us? Because it is abundant. There mm. are abundant parts of the natural world. It's not the case that you only ever extract in a negative way. You can extract in positive ways. Mm. So if we explore that and then decide, you know, actually there's this material that can be used and what can we do with it? How can we make it beautiful? And that makes the designing process really easy because actually there's already a massive story there. There's already loads to talk about. There's already loads of beauty in the object. So actually my job as a designer, pen to paper, is actually quite a small task, really. And what, when you were, um, you know, in your, in your um, studies, was there a tipping point where this was a sudden aha moment for you? Or was this um, something that this sort of philosophy or this approach, something that you'd grown up with as a child, you know, growing up in the English countryside? Or was there a sense of like, oh, actually you know, I can make things beautiful by working with the beauty of the, the materials that I use? Um, I guess both. Like, I think osmosis uh, of my childhood. I grew up in a very rural environment. I grew up in Kent um, uh, in the North Downs. Um, and, you know, I was exposed. I understood coppicing and sustainable forest management from quite a young age, which is probably quite rare. Mm. Um and so when I started studying at university, started, you know, looking at what I could work with there, um, that side of it began to come through. There was a light bulb moment at university where we were driving out to the timber yard. I went to uni in Lincoln, driving out to the timber yard in Grimsby. And we drove past, you know, some tall, healthy woodlands, arrived at the timber yard and uh, everything there was imported. And there was no... British wood available and I just thought what I was like why how, where's the broken link there so I was like okay well then that's my design brief for this project so I want to make it with British wood and then I stayed on at university after um after my undergraduate because uh, I graduated right in the middle of the recession and you know I just thought now is not the time for business and I also wanted to explore more in terms of like properly understanding what sustainability was about so I did an MA and I decided to focus in on looking at um, coppiced wood. So coppicing is a method of woodland management where you harvest trees on short cycles, like maybe seven to 12 years. And when you harvest the wood, importantly, it regrows. So it's a renewable resource. But then there's this sort of added benefit, which is that in harvesting it, you create diverse habitats within woodlands. 
So rather than it just being a closed canopy, shaded woodland with tall trees, you create levels of low trees, high trees, and within that you get a mix of vegetation. So actually there was this enormous biodiversity benefit. And so I sort of realised that actually that is the thing that I want, the lens through which I want to begin to look at furniture and what I design. Um, and then it sort of build on that actually when you start looking at these things you find like heritages of like amazing crafts that go back 2000 years associated with coppicing and woodland management and that kind of thing and um so there was this sort of endless pool of resources in terms of you know design cues which i could draw on and uh yeah i think that kind of just helped set up the whole way that the business operates today my university collection was called traditional as radical like my ma my ma collection the intention was let's look back as a solution for now like so yeah traditional is radical uh, oh that was sorry that was the that was the name of my ma dissertation traditional is radical mm. i mean when you explain it in that way that's that's a really exciting um you know dynamic way of of working with the the natural resources and the abundance of the natural resources that we have in this country but I, I I would I gather that that's you know from what you mentioned about that not being British wood that you saw in that in that timber yard that that's not the typical approach in this country. Yeah, that is true. Ninety percent of the wood, I think eighty-seven percent, nearly ninety percent of the wood that's used in this country is imported, um, which isn't a problem per se. I mean, like you know, it's okay that we live in a global world and we can move stuff around the world, but that says to me that there's some sort of a broken system there because that is a, a very strong leaning. I think the only country in the world that imports more wood than the UK by volume is China. And, um, you know, second place to China um, isn't necessarily something that's a good idea when we're talking about like environmental terms or, you know, you know, resource procurement in my view. So, um, yeah, I think there's a broken system there. And actually that then expands if we're going outside of wood. There are, you start to realise that with globalisation and the level of industrialisation that we're at, there are broken systems everywhere. So, um, yeah. And then the other thing that makes this kind of atypical is that we've kind of pledged not to use sheet materials and MDF in our workshop. And when you start to look at furniture, if you go into any of the kind of like, um, even the high-end uh, stores, um majority of the furniture in there will be made from veneered MDF and it will still be priced very high because a lot of labor can still go into making a piece like that. But ultimately it's not made from solid wood. And we've actually, as, as furniture makers have lost skills and understanding in how to work with solid wood. So we are a total rarity and that makes our life very difficult at times because we actually spend, you know, the, the, the thing that I have to spend a lot of time doing and I enjoy doing is explaining to people why the old way matters and uh, why we operate in the way that we do and how that can have a positive impact. Mm. I mean, that was going to be my, my next question. What You started your, um, your, you opened your workshop in 2010, is that right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so over a decade of, of working uh, commercially in this way, what, what has been some of the biggest challenges that you faced? Um, I think, the, you know, a challenge that was sort of, a really important challenge but not necessarily the biggest was like actually sourcing and supply and make sure that we can really really get a good supply of, this, of the materials that we use and and sort of building those relationships have been important um uh because you know like i say this is not um it's not an off-the-shelf product so to speak i mean there are small family yards that still mill timber in the uk and, and we work with them really well but um finding them actually was quite tricky in the first place i think the biggest challenge is um 
just managing people's perceptions. So the, the main difference between what we make and what you might buy from somewhere else is that if we make your product, it's going to move when it goes into your home. And so there are certain like design uh, areas that we kind of have to work differently around. For example, like just simple flat panels are immediately something which you have to either frame or work differently or have sort of a frame that holds it flat. And that puts into place like perhaps barriers in terms of the client's mind in terms of what they think they want but so we're sort of unpicking a lot of the kind of modern design problems in terms of just saying you know that design has this habit sometimes of just being all about the pen and paper and not really about the materials or the work workshop and um so we're kind of trying to unpick all of that and i think that's been our sort of biggest challenge but one that i really like i say i really do enjoy that like i think it's good because actually it gives us like a something to focus our operation on, like to, you know, if you have principles, as you guys well know, you know, if you, if you, if you say we're going to do things this way and it's different, like the challenge of persuading everyone why that's a good idea becomes your sort of your content, everything you talk about and people's and your USP and people's reason to engage with you. So yeah, it doesn't, it means that sort of going mass market makes it quite, it'd be difficult to sort of sell to millions of people but actually we can have a really close relationship with selling to fewer people and then hopefully have influence on those larger markets as well. Mm. Yeah. You, when you, when you describe um, your process in the old ways, it, it reminds me of a similar conversation that we had with Doug McMaster, who is the brilliant chef uh, owner of silo and um, very much uh, in, in a, in a, in a way, you know, you share a philosophy and, and, and mm. one of the stories that he, he explained big, to us big, is big fan of that restaurant. Yeah. I love it. Sorry to interrupt, but yeah, yeah no, no, I love I mean, Silo. I, he's great. There's a lot of similarities in your approach, even though, you know, it's, it's a different discipline and, um, you know, food and, and design, but, um, yeah, he describes the best the, making the best tasting shortbread that he'd ever tasted. Um, simply because he was trying to use an heritage grain and very low intervention and trying to do it in a very simplistic way um, without using anything process or using too much process. And he was very much focused on the process uh, and the quality of the ingredients and then was surprised that the shortbread was the most delicious thing that he'd ever tasted. <laughs> and it was that, mm. and, that, and I think that's, he described that as his aha moment that, you know, you put in all all of your focus on the design or the development of something and then the result is phenomenal you know mm. you're 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 surprised in a way that what you've created or what he's created in the shortbread is better than you could have ever hoped you know that must be rewarding in, in so many ways yeah it is absolutely and I completely agree I think Doug and I are approaching almost the same issue through two different disciplines but they are linked in it you know in every way, because they're, as I said earlier, about kind of broken systems and kind of reevaluating like the endless quest for progress. We are getting to the point now where we need to sort of just have a look at what the right point on the progress line is to stop. Because just the idea that that just keeps going forever, we're learning that that's problematic. So, you know, in very much the same way that he's reevaluating re that, like, I feel like I'm, I'm doing the same. And, um, yeah, I suppose like, uh, I guess a, a, a big moment, although it probably wasn't as light bulb as like baking, one batch of shortbread um the realization that coppicing um gave me uh it was a material that was kind of already being wasted so like that was the thing initially it was like oh yeah that's just going in the bin it's british let's let's have a look at that but then sort of realizing that coppicing is this three thousand year old method of managing trees 
which has these layers and layers of interest, benefit and beauty kind of built into it, which uh, I just sort of thought, God, you know, why isn't this the way that we harvest wood? You know, why isn't this, you know, obviously it gives you smaller wood. So there are like practical answers to that. But why isn't that like principle of husbandry? the way that we have, like, how have we forgotten all of this? Um, and, you know, as I said earlier, like, you know, in terms of the design of that, um, stuff like we're quite known for weaving with wood and that, you know, we have that in quite a contemporary way, like not, not a kind of really rustic way, but that entirely came from the traditions of like wattle hurdles and all of the sort of split wood textures and um, surfaces that were created by traditional woodmen. So, yeah, looking looking back is an extremely valuable way to look forwards, I think, because um, it, there is so much that's already been answered. And in our endless quest for modernity, we have completely forgotten some of those things which were only present a generation or two ago, which were just sort of past knowledge, refined over centuries and, um, and lost. So yeah. if we can relearn that, you know, there's so much to draw on. And was that the inspiration then in in you writing this incredible manifesto that you shared with us just before Christmas? Just the, an attempt to share or and encourage people to reclaim or, or you know just discover some of the things that we've lost as a way to I don't know you know turn to, you know try to come back from the the amount of damage that's being caused just by our endless kind of search for modernity, as you put it yes absolutely i mean the main kind of i mean the manifesto sought to do a lot of things and that's why it ended up being quite long and it was quite a sort of like a i guess a sort of um, a document that tackled that briefly tackled universal <laughs> subjects so it's kind of like a really a really like a mind-bending operation to write that but um yeah there was this sort of underlying principle of like looking back at how things were once done it wasn't all like oh here are these technological solutions to our current problems I'm rare, rare that I sort of say, oh yeah, there's this new, there's this new app that will solve everything, you know, this new, this new way of like locking carbon up, you know, actually, um, it was largely about saying like, all right, here's what we used to do. We used to understand that cattle can graze woodland and that sort of like basic principle helps to unpick some of the issues around the divisions of like veganism and the idea that, you know, the sort of modern idea is that cattle are fed grain or beans. And that therefore requires loads of land and therefore it's very difficult to justify eating them. Where if you say that cattle can browse natural forage from land which otherwise couldn't have plants growing on it, like uplands or woodlands, and you have silver pastoral systems, not only does that mean that you can eat meat from those areas without interrupting the global food system of plants to people, um, but also then there's these other, oh look, there's loads of other benefits of you know disturbing the wildlife, disturbing the habitat, uh, with herbivores as we learned from rewilding and effectively rewilding is just like you know putting landscapes back to how they were before humans started gardening them you know it's it's a <clears throat> it, so the whole the whole the whole manifesto is supposed around this idea of like how can we live within our means how can we make land share with both human needs and natural needs and uh how can we stop relying on you know, basically at the minute in a kind of very colonial way, we basically export all of our problems, including how we grow our abundant food that we're going to waste. Like it's, it's kind of like, it just looks at all of these questions in terms of like, how can we onshore everything and actually take responsibility for our impacts? 
um, which was a massive question to us. So it sort of became, it started really as an Excel spreadsheet looking at um, data sets around yields for different crops and things like that, and then putting together a different hypothesized ideas around how we allocate our land. And I tried to tackle everything that we would need. So I tried to tackle food, um, fiber production uh, for clothes or materials um, and fuel uh, for um, obviously heating our houses and energy and then a provision for forestry, which I'm presuming is going to be the core part of our um, carbon sequestration, you know, actually not just reaching neutrality, but then actually trying to bring carbon uh, down by through afforestation and then, and then allowing, you know, spaces for nature to, to completely thrive without disturbance or interruption. Mm-hmm. So it was a kind of a massive, um, massive task. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the, the, the underlying thing was like, how did we do it? And every, in every one of those scenarios, how did we do it? And it's even done, you know, questions were answered immediately. Like as soon as you learn about what a mixed farm is and how the principle of not, you know, literally the principle of importing fertility. So bringing in chemical fertilizer is a modern phenomenon. You had to create and look after your own fertility on your farm. So you had this balance between what you would grow and then the animals that you'd have. And, and that was something that just existed for millennia. And then suddenly chemical fertilizers existed and we could do what we liked. And all of that went out the window. So it's just like immediately you look back, even only 50 years to when my dad was farming. And there are loads of solutions there before, you know, it all became completely globalized and industrialized. Mm. And that, that was going to be my question. You know, what, what are the drivers to us having such short memories to, you know, not being able to kind of retain all of this learned knowledge behavior that we've had for millennia and my second question is given that you've written this manifesto what 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 do you want this manifesto to do for education in the future and and how should we be educating using this sort of information so that we don't continue to go down you know this sort of slippery slope probably faster than slippery slope but you know so we've lost a lot of information quite recent information knowledge and then how are we going to get it back yeah that's really difficult um what are the drivers for us losing it i guess so there's a really good book uh, called sapiens i don't know if you guys have read that it's like a you know a big one um and uh, he talks about how like the first people to kind of leave hunter-gatherer society and enter agricultural society they're within a generation or two their quality of nutrition and quality of life presumed decreased but there's no evidence that anyone ever went back which is really worrying so it shows that the drivers for this are innate somehow. No one ever went back to hunter-gathering, which is weird. And I'm not sure why, because... It's hard. You know, yeah, it's, well, it's, it is hard, but, but it, it, it seemingly, we're learning, it resonates with all of the things that are tuned into us. You know, when we go back now from our modern world and engage with any of those sort of like skills or, or um, experiences, it feels good. So that there's something there, but... Um, so I think there is a sort of an in, in, innate, perhaps laziness in humans, which kind of needs to perhaps be undone. But we're sort of re- reaching like peak, the peak point where we really don't need any more assistance in our lives. Like, you know, we, we, we have, if we want it, loads of spare time to do these things. So I don't really know what the answer is in terms of what the drivers are kind of on a smaller scale but I do think it's innate but so therefore I think it requires some effort to undo it and I've always been brought up by my mum and my dad to be like 
you know, to, to uh, like mental laziness, like personal laziness in terms of like challenging yourself and all that is it was never acceptable in my house so I kind of guess like I'm perhaps a bit of a disciplinarian in that like we have to challenge ourselves we have to ask big questions and I suppose the thing that's going to push that on us more than anything else is the crises that we're facing you know our oceans the climate emergency and the biodiversity crisis are um, literally beginning to knock on our door now and I think people are beginning to feel a sense of panic so I think that people are scrabbling around for solutions and, you know, the big oil companies are looking for the, the sort of the technology part that's going to, you know, let us carry on exactly as we are. And we'll just have something that sucks up all the, hoovers up all the carbon or whatever. But actually, I think that there's going to be much more value and happiness to be found from kind of returning to the old ways. So how do we do that? How do we educate going forward? And what was the intention of the manifesto? I guess the manifesto was intended, that was your second question, wasn't mm-hmm. it? Yeah. yeah. The, the manifesto was intended to like people have said to me like you know this should be policy proposal or whatever and I say quite clearly in chapter one like this is not policy (laughs) I don't feel qualified (laughs) to make recommendations on policy like there are groups and organizations who are much better placed to do that than me um pressure groups you know political charities whatever whatever um but it's I suppose it was like intended to be a consumer guide and I think the first lesson has to be that and I think people are finally coming onto this. Like everything you buy, everything you do, knowing what we know about the impact that our behavior has on the world, the natural world and the planet we inhabit, everything you do and everything you buy is a political act. You, you can't get away from the fact that you're playing politics when you purchase something which is doing damage to a habitat or an ecosystem mm-hmm. or a sea. So understanding that as a first point is like the main thing that I think we were trying to get across. It's like, we have to take some responsibility. So a consumer guide seems like a good place to start. Plus also my training as a designer kind of positions me quite well to sort of like think about what people's behavior does. Um, So yeah, I don't want to be too ambitious with this. And um, I think that's worked as a position so far because actually people just reading it has had an impact. You know, we've sold we sold a, a lot of copies compared with what we thought we were going to sell. I can't remember what the exact numbers are, but I think we originally printed a thousand and we are on our second run now easily. Mm-hmm. So just having small impacts is really all it was intended to do, I think. But I don't really want to stand before a select committee. I don't feel qualified to do that. <laughs> you might not have any choice. I think there's, there's a thousand people who might compel you to, uh, to start, to start doing that for us. It's such a powerful piece of work. Um, what, what has been the response from, from those people who have, who have read it? Has there been any negative feedback? No, actually there hasn't been any negative feedback, which I was surprised at. I thought that some people would come back and be like, no, nah, your numbers are wrong, mate. I can't grow. <laughs> I can't grow, you know, whatever, a ton of potatoes per acre or whatever it was. But um, no, there hasn't been any negative feedback. Maybe people are too polite. Um, (laughs) um, I'm not on Twitter. So yeah, maybe if I was on there, it would be a storm. But um, Instagram's a nice place, isn't it? Um, Yes, sorry. uh, People, yeah, people have um, generally uh, been really uh, encouraging about the whole thing. Um, And... It, what's been lovely is we've had like loads of suppliers come out of the woodwork and be like, oh, my friend sent me this. I'm raising cattle in this regenerative way in the Lake District. Um, you know, here's what we do. And one of the things that we're following it up with um, is to basically write a list, you know, of suppliers that kind of have come forward and said, oh, I'm actually, I'm trialing a hemp crop 
um, in Cornwall or whatever it is. Like, or I know this person who's weaving hemp, you know, the first, but they're developing a machine to harvest and, and, uh, and keep the full length of the hemp cord or whatever it is. So that's been the most kind of rewarding part is like hearing people who are already doing it come out the woodwork who I hadn't mm. previously discovered. Mm. You strike me as a very optimistic person um, and even sort of reading the manifesto, there's a, a real uh, optimism in it. What do, what, what do you say or what advice do you give to people who, you know, simply feel overwhelmed or, or paralysed or, you know, grief stricken by what's happened to the point of, of paralysis of not being able to do anything um, in their own sort of small way? Um, I would say it's not too late. And... Um... And that actually, if you picture what it will be like, like, can you imagine the day that global temperatures start to drop? Like, picture that in your mind. Like, you know, maybe we have like five consecutive years where we know that the atmospheric carbons come down and that the global temperature starts to decrease. We hit that curve. Just imagine that day. You're going to live to see that day. Um, I can't claim this, this quote, but I was on a panel discussion recently with an architect, a brilliant architect called Andrew War, and he said, we might be the most important generation in history. I mean, that's pretty, you know, stating it pretty bold, but that makes you feel like, wow, yeah, you're absolutely right. We could make this change happen. We will see this within our life. And it, it really, the change really will come from people. I mean, you're already seeing this. Like, I personally think that the focus on plastic in the last few years has been a bit of a distraction from the bigger issue, in my, to my mind, of climate change and atmospheric carbon and biodiversity loss. I think that those two are the bigger and the sea plastic thing is smaller. But what's happened is you've seen legislation focusing on the plastic thing because that's what the public are really enraged by. They hate litter because they see it. You can't see atmospheric carbon. You might notice that it didn't snow this winter in your area, but you see that and you maybe like I live in Margate now, I walk on the beach and I'm getting really aggravated about ocean plastic big time now. But I think that what that showed us was that policymakers are responding to those things. Like, you know, the EU announced the ban on single use plastics very quickly. And that's the EU, you know, who are a large organization. So I think that, you know, if you express your concerns through what you consume, you know, companies, businesses, brands are so tuned into what you want now that that really does feed what they make because it's so driven by what people are searching on Google, how people interact on the internet. They have so much data and knowledge about how, what you feel, what you think, what you're curious about, that they really are responding to that. And you can see it in the way that companies are changing now. So even just the last couple of years, all right, it's been led by people like Greta Thunberg and David Attenborough, but the sea change is coming from people because David Attenborough has been making programs about the oceans and whatever, you know, about climate change and and raising those issues for, for some time. I think it's been in the public consciousness, but there's been like a, a, a mood shift which is happening. So I'm really optimistic that we'll get there. Uh, and I just can't literally, like I, when you see, there was a recent thing um, on the anniversary of VE Day and you see these like jubilant crowds in you know Trafalgar Square celebrating the end of the war. Like, I feel like we're going to have a bit of one of those, although it'll be a bit staggered with the pandemic because, you know, the vaccinations will take a little while or whatever. But, but that day where it's kind of announced that atmospheric carbon's declining, like, that's going to be amazing. I can't wait to see it. It's going to be so good. Yeah, Don't you think? Good. Yeah, no, I'm, see, I'm, I'm buoyed by your optimism and, uh, and I, really, I really hope that we do, we do see that day. But I, I'm also cognizant that, you know, we, since 2010, uh, have been defined as an urban species and we spend, 
90% of our time indoors and 5% of time in a car. And we're, you know, really withdrawing from the natural world to such an extent. And I, and I, and I wonder whether that does have such an impact on, on the fact that we're able to other the natural world so that we can therefore take from it and, and, and see it as something to, to use as opposed to protect and regenerate. It absolutely, that is a massive concern. Um, but uh, look at what the pandemic has done for people's appetite for nature. You know, Isabella Tree wrote a really interesting article about how the numbers at NEP during lockdown went, they couldn't, they couldn't handle the number of people that wanted to visit. Um, so that people are very conscious now because of this pandemic, and this has offered a massive opportunity for that provision of nature to be put into the infrastructure of how we design our urban spaces, how we, how, how we plan our towns, all of those things. So I think that that is beginning to shift. I do think that a massive part of the whole problem that we're in is the othering, as you say, is the sort of displacement of responsibility, the sort of like that's over there. But that is not going to cut it anymore, frankly. So we were having a conversation in the workshop. Most of my team are under 30. I'm the oldest by some way. Uh, and um, they make me feel very young sometimes. And uh, they were talking about like, you know, family meals. Some of them are vegans, most are vegetarian. And then um, they were talking about family meals and how someone had brought up the idea that the cow had been killed for their... And, and an older member of the family said, oh, don't say that at the meal table. And it was like, there was this sort of like evident kind of potential generational attitude. And I'm not trying to like, you know, pitch the generations against each other because that's, you know, not something that I wish to do. But I think that there is an attitude change which is certainly present in lots of young people where they, they've they seen Cowspiracy, they've seen Dominion or any of those films and they want to know the truth. They want to either, they either believe that or whatever and or, or they, they want to investigate that further. And I think that our access to instant information in our pockets I think that the way that brands now talk about, you know, much more about where things come from and the values behind them, it's changed the landscape in terms of like shutting out the ideas of that are problematic. So um, I think the othering thing will begin to unpick itself over, the, over time. And I think our desire to get out in nature will only be more and more recognized as uh, something which is, you know, absolutely a necessity and a need. And I think we're going to see a shift in that back. The problem, the main sort of issue with this is, and Isabella Tree writes really beautifully about this in her book, Wilding, is that how can you care about the nightingale going extinct if you don't know what it sounds like, if you don't know the call of a nightingale? Uh, so we do have to, again, this is going back to me, you know, wagging my finger and saying we have to be rigorous here. We have to educate ourselves. We have to, we have to ask what was there and begin to care about things that maybe we aren't aware of. And become eager to see and experience those things and demand them actually begin to demand like i i think it's a perfectly reasonable demand that everyone should know what a nightingale sounds like like actually having some sort of piece of scrub as part of the town planning of everywhere which could attract nightingales i mean they you know i'm using that as an example because it's a particularly emotive song and we also know that they will quite happily take up residence in motorway services so you know the, the, that, that should be a human right. That should be a basic right is this sort of access and understanding of nature, maybe nature that wasn't even there, that's been lost in the last 20 years, you know, in a wide, wide sense. Yes. Um, 
you you you've touched a nerve for us because um you know the the acorn is called acorn for the reason that um we discovered a little late um this this uh, was shared in 2013 i think that words relating to the natural world are being taken taken out of the oxford english children's dictionary um such as acorn bramble heron otter all these really beautiful words um that effectively deprive children from the words to describe what these things are and therefore um desensitize or, or remove their ability to have any relationship with these things. Um, and in us calling acorn, acorn, it was just a, a one small attempt to kind of reclaim that word in a way. And I think that, um, you know, we have perhaps lost uh, a sense of awe or wonder when we think of the natural world today, which I hope having gone through the pandemic, we've started to reclaim. And so we become more demanding about the language that we try to protect not only the natural world, but the language that describes it so that mm. we, we we do save it. And it's not just about regenerate, re regenerating the, the physical natural world, but also regenerating and protecting the language that, that we use. Because if we lose that, then we we do, we do lose any ability to have a relationship with with it, which is which is shocking. Mm. Yeah, I completely agree. I'm very pleased that there are you know a number of books that are kind of looking at this and preserving those things now before they are lost. Through you know, there's a, we 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 just about have the links. You know, there are mm. like when I was born, there was an old woodman who lived nearby who my dad always used to talk about how he used to do things, and and he was sort of like linking back to kind of late Victorian way of doing things and so that link is just about there in the sort of in the kind of tacit knowledge and, and living knowledge we've just about made it and then written it down and I hope that we can rediscover those things in the way that exactly like like you've done you've sort of brought that back to life you've rediscovered it and what's beautiful about that is it's given you a completely unique name but also like a completely unique um way of viewing the world a lens through which to look at things um so there's plenty of opportunity to rediscover that and bring those things back to life. And um, yeah, I, that is a, it is a tragic, I think Blackberry is now replaced by the smartphone. Very short lived smart. No one has one of those anymore today. So that'll have to go again. Hopefully Blackberry will come back and no. Apple, Apple is now a technology company. It's, yeah. um, it is tragic, but um, there's a really good book called the lost words. I think it's called by Robert yes. McFarlane. That's a great one. Um, That's, that was the inspiration and we mm. Ben and I sat in the library and read the acorn uh, spell in that book and were moved to tears so that we decided to call acorn acorn mm. I, th I think we're also at a really interesting time because we're now also able to peer into our brains to see the effect the biological biochemical effect that nature has on on us um, from a physiological perspective and so we we can we can understand that um, when we experience Experience awe or wonder that actually that does something to help protect us and effectively help us live longer. Just being in the natural mm. world can help you be more creative. And we're only we're only now just starting to understand some of the effects of nature as some of those old ways and that old knowledge is perhaps lost or forgotten. There's this new technology that's allowing us to see the effect in, in real mm. time on our brains. And there's a brilliant book um, by Lucy Jones called Losing Eden, which I highly recommend, which she goes into great detail around, um, you know, 
why nature is so good for us and why we should protect it, not just because of nature itself, but also our relationship to it will help us live longer and happier lives. So, yeah. And I think, um, I think it's Dieter Helm's book, Natural Capital. He was a like former policy advisor. He sort of worked in quite high levels of government and he wrote, he's written a couple of really great books, but one of them, he actually like, I'm pretty sure it's his own work, calculates the amount that the NHS could save yeah. uh, through the mitigation of like mental health services and all those kinds of things, which where we're spending money to solve problems, which actually if we just diverted some of that money to building infrastructure in a way that allows people to connect with the natural world, we wouldn't have to have those problems. And we're effectively at the moment, all that's being passed on to the future, but actually we really need to start saving that and bring it forwards. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's... it's, it's um, it's it's we're living in extremely interesting times like they're risky they're dangerous but uh yeah i think it's you know this is um this is an exciting time to be alive yes scary terrifying it's the same energy we just have to reframe it right we have to think of it as being exciting just Mm. lastly seb i'd like to talk a little bit about um you know the the furniture itself that that you that you create and bring into people's homes and I suppose in a lot of ways when when you create a table or a chair there's an element of you bringing the natural world into your home and the symbolism that that represents and the lot of meaningful conversations or meaningful connections happen around the table and I, I wonder whether you have any thoughts about you know what you create and the symbols that they 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 represent for people mm, yeah I mean um it, it is exactly that it is bringing you know the be- I mean the beautiful thing about wood is that it's yeah you know, there are other natural materials which maybe don't record quite so closely the environment in which that tree lived you know and we I can talk to uh, my customers about you know potentially what the annual rings could mean so there's like, there is such value in that. And um, there are other benefits, of course, like it, you know, it's an endlessly kind of like refinishable surface and it has this lovely longevity, but there's something about it. And this sort of like ties into the theme of our conversation, I guess, which is like, it's so timeless as a material, you know, you, you bring this in, you, we hope that you will pass that on to your kids, you know, um, and, 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 and so on. So yeah, it's, um, and then and then wrapped up in that is this kind of like the story of the natural world and and a lot of our output as a business is also sharing that as well so it's not just the furniture but then it's what's embedded behind it so if you scratch the surface you know and you bother to go on instagram and have a look at what we do you'll see that like you know posts about where that wood has come from and, and the sort of wider natural benefit and i think that is something which um is a subtle but powerful tool to get people to not only care about their interior space but also like you know actually the habitat that's grown in and where that's come from and obviously the dining table is my favorite thing to make because that is the thing that kind of you hope that conversation is really properly uh taken to task around the table you know um Mm. it becomes the conversation piece for the use of that um yeah furniture is a lovely thing i mean I, i i um I've often thought about like retraining to be an architect as well, but actually there's something, there's something about the domestic, there's something about the furniture, you know, the the way that furniture is so human in scale. We use it all the time. It fits our bodies. It's sort of like present. 
And actually it has this quite significant place in our lives, but it's kind of also latent. It kind of also doesn't really require much of our attention. So it has this really amazing like way of being able to just slip into people's lives. And if you have like a message tied up in that as well, there's this sort of conversation piece. It becomes, um, yeah, it becomes powerful. People, people can develop emotional connections to furniture and um, it's a good way to sort of bridge that gap between, you know, what we have to say and what the customer thinks and, and believes. Hmm. I suppose more people have been spending uh, more time at their tables the last year. Hmm. Um, have you had more commissions for tables, less commissions for tables? What, what's what's been yeah, happening? We've, we've had, I mean, we've had an, uh, an upsurge in desks. That's certainly the case that, you know, working from home has caused people to reevaluate that. Um, a lot of our work is um, kind of quite sort of larger scale bespoke stuff. So at the minute we're furnishing a library um, with street trees from the council's tree um, surgery. Um, My hopefully. local library, actually. Local library, I'm going yeah. to have a shout. I'm going to claim it. It's like the Lee Bridge. Yeah. Lee Bridge Library. <laughs> shout out. <laughs> you can go and use it all. Um, you know, we're, I mean, there's a, there's a collaboration between Seedlip and us as well, which is sort of bubbling away. And that will be like a, you know, whatever whatever way that sort of translates, it will likely be, a larger body of work with plenty of furniture in it. So our core business is more those kinds of projects where, you know, we focus on the design over a period of time. We do have products which we sell, but it's, we're not like a, we're not like a retailer where I could tell you that definitely um, one person desks have gone up 55% or whatever it is, you know, like it's, it's, um, it's a smaller part of what we do. Mm. Um, But yeah, it's a, it's certainly something which we think is going to change and the landscape is going to change. And the other thing that we think is that, um, you know, office spaces within London, which is where we're based, um, will become higher value spaces. They'll be much more about how you express your company, your values. They'll have to be a space that will want to draw people in. So we're rather hoping that people will be investing more in those rather than just being like, Oh God, I need 400 chairs and I've only got a budget of whatever. It'll be much more about how can we make this space totally represent who we are, what we believe, what we do, and make it really appealing for our staff to come in. So we're also hoping that there's opportunities there in that sort of commercial sector for us. It's mm-hmm. kind of really, really put meaning in the heart of uh, you know people's brands, um, because obviously we can always find like we can always find some meaning that's relevant to a company or or a commission through wood. Like there's always a connection inevitably, you know, it's, it, there's, there's yeah. something there um, that, that really helps them tell their story through natural materials. Mm. Well, Seb, this has been a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much. Um, I cannot wait to the time I can have a Seb Cox in my house. Until that point, I would have to go to the library yeah. <laughs> and experience your beautiful work. But but where can people find more information about you? Yeah, so our website's quite um, good for, it's got a good resources section and you can also see the furniture. So that's sebastiancox.co.uk and also our Instagram as well. Um, there's sort of like a, an ongoing kind of, you know, stream of what we're up to um, with some, we try and pepper kind of lectures and lessons amongst photogenic content. <laughs> it's a good trick. And just lastly, um, if you could have a spritz with anybody anywhere right now, uh, COVID is not a consideration. Where, where and who would you be enjoying that drink with? And any, any period in time? Any period in time, yeah. Dead or alive? Yep. 
William Morris. Nice. Uh, I'd sit down for a chat with William Morris if he had time to see me. Um, and you would. I, this, this is fictional. He's got okay. all the time in the world. What would you ask him? Well, <laughs> well I, I'd probably be so um, starstruck. I'd struggle. Um, but um, I'd just kind of want to explore how he thinks the movement that he started, you know, the arts and crafts movement started in the late Victorian era as a reaction to industrial revolution. Um, how what he started has been continued now. I think he'd probably be really frustrated that we've sort of got this close to the deadline, so to speak. But I think he would have a lot to say about how, you know, what he was saying at the time could be adapted for now. And I think that it could be a really, really interesting conversation to hear um, his views because he, I mean, to me, he's such an inspiration in terms of, you know, I mean, he, he, he was the first person to kind of take objects and material culture and how things are made and relate that back to political meaning, like improvement of our way of living being expressed through an art movement. That was totally revolutionary. Um, and without the arts and crafts movement, I wouldn't do what I'm doing today or me and some mates would probably have come up with it. Like it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's an, it was an amazingly powerful movement and, um, so much more than wallpaper. I get so annoyed when people say, oh, actually, I think, I think he would be so cross um, that people would be like, oh, William Morris, you. the yeah, wallpaper what... guy. <laughs> <laughs> He'd be so furious. Uh, I was going to say, what do you think his response would be to, yeah, how he's perceived today? <laughs> I think he'd be really gutted. Um, yeah. But um, I think he'd be pleased that there are serious Speaking of Walthamstow, the, the museum in Walthamstow is excellent for sort of giving across his, you know, what he was about and what the change that he brought. Um, so, yeah, I think I think he'd, um, he'd probably have mixed views. Um, but anyway, yeah, I'd definitely, definitely sit down for a spritz with him. Mm, it's a good one. It's a really good one. I, I'm really disappointed to say that the course that I studied at university no longer exists. So um, my the route to doing what I've done isn't kind of, immediately available um i studied furniture design and craftsmanship at lincoln university um and there was this appalling um shift in universities which caused uh courses that were expensive to run like mine to close um there was a sort of a, a commercialization of universities and so my course was amazing because it was 50 percent making 50 percent designing and honest to god i would not have gone to university if someone hadn't said you can make for half the time because I was not um good at school I did not I wasn't my A-levels GCSEs are appalling um I was a late flourisher academically so um so yeah it was a brilliant course um there are some courses where you can study design but they won't teach you the making which is really sad I think craft um craft offers a really powerful lens through which to begin to uh really hone in on how things are done, how things are produced. Um, and it, it, again, you know, going back to the thread that seems to run through the whole conversation here is that craft immediately forced you to look back. And when you start looking back, you realize there's loads of things there that are really blatantly obvious as solutions for today. So I, I you know, if you're just going to study design, you might not have that same experience, which is really sad. Um, but hopefully those courses will come back um, because I think that, you know, even, you know, even, um, kind of government are beginning to recognize that vocational like practical 
education is absolutely central. You know, it's not just about STEM subjects. Hmm. Yeah, let's hope they bring them back because it sounds as though that could also be a bit of a game changer for how we think about material resource the environment you know as opposed to it being sort of just all focused on mm. academia it's yeah quite a back one of the i don't remember many of the things that i wrote in the manifesto but one of them that i do remember is like i think if we became a a, um, a nation of makers again and a nation of manufacturers and producers we would actually become a, a nation of better consumers because i think that's the missing link is like because we don't understand how and where things are made anymore that detachment's happened we're so far removed from knowing what impacts are kind of on the whim demands might have. And I've always said that like, if you sat down, so my job basically is to take the customer and in a funny sort of way, sit them down in a bar with the guy that grows the trees and kind of say like, so you want a table and you're growing trees. Like let's, let's link you two up and understand each other's problems because there's no way that that customer would sit down and demand Walmart if the forester said, but we've only got one walnut tree left in the forest, you know, it just wouldn't happen. They'd be like, oh God, okay, well, we'll have oak. But because they're, because those links are broken, it's very easy to make these sort of demands that are based on your colour scheme in your house, which is just, to me, nonsense. Um, your colour scheme should go last around all of your other objects, in my view. Um, you know, it's about breaking those links down. So yeah, I think, I think craft has a huge percent potential to change people's mindset and perception around, you know, how we live. It's a brilliant way to wrap up. Seb Cox, thank you so much for an inspiring chat. It was brilliant. Thank um, you, guys. And, uh, yeah, we follow you, Instagram. And, uh, yeah, please download or order the manifesto because it's, it's absolutely mind-blowing and game-changing. So thank you for taking the time to talk to us about it today. Thank you very much. I hope you enjoyed that episode. Join me next time when I catch up with Lucy Jones, author of Losing Eden, Why Our Minds Need the Wild. We explore our deep, primal connection to nature, how it's transformed her life and how it can transform yours too. See you then.